All right. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings 17 this morning. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll uh, be in several places, but that's our, our predominant text this morning. This is the fall of Israel. And uh, so there are a few of these left. I'm going to disperse these around again. Let's see. Pass, pass those around. Uh, I'm, this, what's coming around is just this timeline that we have referred to a few times. Um, and I think it will be a helpful reference this morning and throughout the rest of the class as well. Uh, we'll, we'll refer to that here in a few minutes. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the fall of Israel. So here's a quick kind of road map of what we will do. We're going to look at some historical context, which may be um, a little bit basic, but it's important, I think, to the flow of the story. We'll go all the way through 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, which is the entire fall. And then we'll just talk a little bit about the exile motif that we see throughout Scripture uh, that uh, shows up over and over again. Um, so first, the historical context. This is a, a map of the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, some of you uh, may have learned early on in your childhood, the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, the 12 tribe, tribes of Israel, and you might know them in a song, you might just be able to rattle them off from memory. Here's uh, where it gets a little bit tricky, and so I just, I'm trying to make kind of three columns so that we can kind of compare and contrast a little bit. We have the 12 uh, tribes of Israel as seen on the map. <clears throat> of course, these are the 12 sons of, of Jacob, and then we have the 12 tribes of Israel, and there are a few ways to account the tribes of Israel. There are actually 10 tribes of Israel, two tribes of Judah, but you can kind of say all of them are part of Israel. Uh, and then there are a few specific tribes that we'll talk about in just a second. First of all, the, the sons of Jacob. Uh, of course, you remember the story probably of, of Jacob marrying, uh, falling in love with Rachel and first marrying Leah, her sister, and then uh, working another seven years for their father and then eventually getting to marry uh, Rachel. Uh, so he loves Rachel, but is married to both the sisters, Leah and Rachel. Leah uh, is the one that first bears him sons. By the way, this is the list of the sons. We don't have a list of the daughters. We know of one daughter, uh, Dina. Remember that story? She's raped, and a couple of the brothers uh, from Leah uh, go and, and kill, kill the whole uh, town in a pretty graphic scene. Um, and there, there is a uh, text, a verse somewhere that refers to the other, or it's just daughters, plural. So there are multiple daughters, we just don't know their names other than Dina. I've never heard that story about the, oh yeah, talk about vengeance. Right. Wiping out an entire town. Right. I've never um, heard that story. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, pretty, it's pretty graphic. The, the story there is uh, the, the brothers go to the essentially the, the rapist. There are a couple different versions of the story. In one context, it looks like it's a rape. In another one, it seems like it's a seduction. We don't have the whole context there. Uh, in any case, two of the brothers go, I don't remember which two. Does anybody remember? Simeon and uh, Levi, I think. Simeon and Levi go and uh, <clears throat> find the, the village of this rapist and say, look, you can marry our sister but you and your whole clan have to be circumcised. And so they say, okay, and they circumcise themselves 
And I think on day three, when they're still sore and wounded from this surgery, uh, Simeon and Levi attack and wipe them all out and take the women and children and all the plunder of the, of the town, <clears throat> which has consequences then later as well. But in any case, there are, there are several sisters involved. Um, but Leah uh, bears children or bears sons first. In fact, this first one, Reuben, uh, you recognize the word Ben in Hebrew probably meaning, meaning son. So um, there are several uh, characters in the, in the Bible that have Ben as part of their name, which just means son. Uh, Reuben in the Hebrew, this is the only Hebrew we'll do today. Uh, you know, we're going right to left. So this is the Ben part right here. So this just means son. Ra'u, I guess, I guess there's a Bob here. Ra'u is just the verb uh, look. It's the uh, imperative command, look. And so Leah has named her firstborn, look, a son. And this is because she knows that Jacob does not love her in the same way that he loves Rachel. And so she's trying to earn Jacob's love by saying, look, I've given you a son. Will, will you love me now the way you love my sister Rachel? Uh, he, ne- he never does. In any case, uh, Leah has four sons. And then finally, Rachel thinks, Okay, I've got to do something here. I'm not, for whatever reason, I'm not bearing children. So Rachel gives her handmaiden Bilhah to Jacob to lay with. Uh, Bilhah has a couple of sons. Leah says, well, I can't let Rachel uh, one-up me here. So Leah gives her handmaiden Zilpah to Jacob. Zilpah bears a couple of sons. And then Leah has a couple more. And then finally, uh, Rachel has two boys, Joseph and Benjamin. Um, and, of course, uh, we know the story of Joseph who sold into slavery, which moves the people all the way down into Egypt where they're enslaved. So that's a quick history there of the 12 sons of Jacob. The, the main point, I say all that to say that there's not a direct correlation between the 12 sons and the 12 tribes. Uh, Simeon is a tribe that is totally um, surrounded within Judah. And as the Old Testament moves, we hear less and less about Simeon, and it, it appears that the tribe of Simeon is just kind of uh, mixed into the tribe of Judah. Uh, Simeon uh, loses, loses its place, apparently. Levi uh, is designated as a tribe, but has no land. So, and of course, the Levites are the priests of the people that uh, intermingle amongst all the, all the tribes. Uh, Judah is, of course, in the south, but technically isn't a tribe of Israel. It's a tribe of Judah, as is Benjamin. So Benjamin and Judah and kind of Simeon make up Judah. The remaining tribes make up Israel. Uh, then you do have tribes for all of these uh, sons. Joseph uh, has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, Joseph's uh, tribe becomes uh, named for his two sons. And you can see on the map, Manasseh is huge geographically, and Ephraim is, is pretty large as well. Uh, they get this lion's share uh, of the land and um, and that that has a story behind it as well uh, Reuben you might remember Reuben uh, sins with Jacob's concubine uh, Bilhah he enters the tent and sleeps with Bilhah so this is like his uh, aunt's handmaiden um, and so thereby desecrates Jacob's bed and so eventually we hear in fact um, I don't have that. Oh, yeah, I do have that. Uh, 35, Genesis 35, 22. 
Uh, while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel, Jacob, hears of it. Uh, and so there's a consequence for that. Reuben, later in First Chronicles 5, Reuben was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, uh, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And, and though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a, and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. And so it appears that Joseph gets uh, part of the land that Reuben should have gotten, and Judah gets the rights to uh, the kingship. Rather than the kingships, rather than the future kings always coming through the line of Reuben, that is kind of punted down to, to Judah. So therefore we have uh, the line of Judah. You know, Jesus comes from, from the line of, of Judah. So that's uh, a little background there on those tribes. So I, I just say all that to say a lot of times in the past it has been confusing to me when I read about the 12 tribes of Israel and realize that's not exactly the same list as the 12 sons of Jacob. So hopefully that kind of clears up some of the confusion. There are a few kind of asterisks with Levi not having land, uh, Simeon kind of is enveloped, and Joseph gets split into two. But essentially, uh, for the rest of the class, we're going to talk about uh, Israel in the north, so everything except for Judah and Benjamin, which is the kingdom of Judah, which will remain another few years. So if you look at your uh, timeline there, uh, this is divided into a top half and a bottom half. So once you get to the end of the right side of the top half, you loop back down to the bottom. The yellow timeline is Israel. And so you see the last king there is Hosea. That's what we're, who we're going to read about in uh, 2 Kings 17. And then they go off into Assyrian captivity. Judah remains, wraps around to the bottom line there for another hundred and... Somebody can do that math, 120 years or so before Judah falls. But that's, that's where we are today. So that's where we will pick up. Okay? All right, so uh, that's our historical context. Let's look at these first few verses of 2 Kings chapter 17. <clears throat> I'll read the first six verses, and then we'll, uh, we'll discuss that. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, uh, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid, had, uh, paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala and Gozan, uh, on the Habor River and in the town of, of the Medes. So that's essentially the, the whole uh, narrative. We'll get into some explanation here in the next few verses, but that's the whole story we get of, <clears throat> of the fall of Israel. So uh, you have Israel, the kingdom of Israel, up in the north. 
who apparently has had some allegiance to Assyria in the past uh, as a vassal relationship. So uh, they have probably exchanged some money, but certainly exchanged allegiances, uh, have had some sort of truce with, with Assyria. And uh, the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, gets wind that they're also, uh, you know, they're playing both sides. They're also working with uh, the south, that they're uh, having some sort of relationship with Egypt as well. <clears throat> and he doesn't, he doesn't like that. I'm guessing, you know, that there is some sort of, uh, the, the politics just constantly shift between these different countries. But I, I would assume at this point, Syria and Egypt uh, are positioned against each other. So Israel can't, can't play both sides of that. Shalmaneser, uh, it seems he actually puts, uh, puts the king uh, Hosea in prison on the front end of the invasion and then battles uh, with the people for three years before Israel finally falls. And then he uh, uh, sends them off into captivity in Assyria. So that's, that's the quick, um, quick story here. Um, first of all, we see that Hosea is named as evil. And in fact, it says he's evil uh, in a different way than, than the kings before him. Apparently, he has gone off the rails entirely. Uh, so we have seen some evilness in kings. Uh, it seems that Hosea is evil in a, in a totally new kind of way, is worshiping foreign gods that we'll see in just a moment. Um, and finally, Jehovah says, this is, this is enough. I have told you, you will not have other gods before me. You're continuing to practice this. And, and this, is the, this is the end, and, and so the, the kingdom, kingdom falls. Uh, we already talked a little bit about the allegiance there to uh, Assyria and Egypt. Uh, it's a, it's a three-year battle, which is pretty significant. We've read in past chapters of battles that go in a day, where 120,000 people can be killed in a day. This is a three-year uh, war, which is, is pretty significant. And then, um, of course, the Israelites are deported to Syria leaving Judah to stand alone. All right, any uh, questions or comments about this fall? We'll get into the why of it in the next section. Okay. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and read the, the longer section here, the middle section, to find out uh, why this exile has had to take place. Uh, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations of the, the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. <clears throat> the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From, from watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns, High places were typically used for worship of, of foreign gods. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah all, uh, through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your forefather, that I commanded your fathers to obey, and that I delivered to you through my servants, 
the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and, and the covenant he had made with, with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed <clears throat> worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them. Do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God had made for themselves. Uh, I'm sorry. They, they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunders until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned <clears throat> through all his servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria and they are still there. Okay. Um, I want to point out verse 15, which I think is, is especially uh, pertinent. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. I wonder if... This is the reason that God is so uh, determined that his people will not follow idols. I think it's rooted in the fact that we are made in his image. And because he is a God who has worth, his image has worth. Therefore, if, if we live in his image, we have worth. And if we reject all of that and adopt a storyline from an idol that is worthless, then we make ourselves worthless. So it seems like... Uh, God is really wanting his people. It's not necessarily a selfish or prideful thing that God is saying, uh, look at me, I want you to worship me. I deserve your worship. I wonder if he's doing that for the, for the people's benefit so that they will have worth, so that their worth will be defined uh, by his image, which is uh, true and meaningful, whereas the other gods are not. Um, the, this translation, which is New American Standard, mm -hmm. um, says... So they, they get into this practice of trying to leverage these foreign gods, these other gods, for uh, purposes for them. Uh, you know, that we're going to worship this god of the harvest so that our crops can be good and we will be enriched. We're going to uh, worship this god of fertility so that we can have children. So uh, they're getting into this realm of trying to, to leverage God um, or to leverage false gods for their own benefit. And I think that's, that's the issue. Luckily, uh -oh. luckily, 
we don't ever do that, right? And that's that's a that's a foot stomping comment. You know, obviously, I think we fall into that camp. Uh, we can very easily fall into that where we try to leverage God, where we try to live a certain way, which means, okay, God, we've followed your commands. Now you now you owe us. And I think that comment is especially important given that the power went out while I was talking. But they did it so much so that they were willing to sacrifice their children. Right. Their children in fire. Yeah. Because it's twice yeah. as bad. That's right. Yeah. That's, just think about, we're depraved, but think about how depraved you have to be to do that. Right. Yeah, it's, it's almost unfathomable to get to a place where you think uh, worship demands the life of children. That's right. I, I, there's not really much you can say. I just can't. Earlier, I think, you know, I don't know who's writing it. He says, who is Israel that you would choose us? And he's like, I didn't choose you because you were a great, huge nation. Basically, I'm choosing you. I'm putting my favor on you so that my glory is then shown. And when God's people reject his favor, reject his love, reject, reject his choosing, it is as though they, if your worth comes because he's chosen, because I put my favor on you, you're worth something to me. And we forget it. I don't want that. You know, then we're as though we, we take the worth away. Mm-hmm. And it's a sad, I undermined that before I saw that on your slide. They themselves became worthless. How sad is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Justin. I wonder if we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss that we don't also occasionally um, sacrifice our children to idols. Um, Not just America, but all nations. At some point, we are fighting in wars that are unjust and sending our children in service to a state that may or may not have the goals of the kingdom of God. I wonder, while it may not be like burning of the stake or doing some sort of voodoo offering, at some level we're still, we still could be seen as sacrificing our children to an idol. How about something less than that? How about sacrificing our children to idols when we give them a cell phone too early in life and they spend their life looking at their cell phone every minute of every day? Right. Yeah. I think both of those are, are valid points. I also think we can make our children the idols. Uh, and we construct our whole lives around uh, a soccer schedule or, or whatever it may be. Um, and so I don't know if that's a form of sacrificing a child to an idol when essentially you're making the child into the image of, uh, of whatever they're pursuing, soccer or what, what it be, whatever it might be. So, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of correlations. Uh, certainly there's um, something different between these metaphors which very well could be true and you know pushing your child into the fire like I can I can see how I could succumb to uh, you know even sending a giving my child a cell phone or making my child feel like they're the center of the world or even sending them off to a war that might not be a a just war if if there's such a thing Um, but I don't I don't I wouldn't be able to you know, push them into the fire. So, I think our most danger is we don't want to get, we don't want to read this and go, ooh, glad we're not, we're not like them. Right. We just as easily. Right, right. 
And I'm just thinking of all the ways we keep one foot in the world and one foot in God. It just, he knew, don't intermarry those people because I know what you'll do. You'll just little by little, and we do that, I do that every single day. Just move a little bit closer to the fire, just a Mm -hmm. little bit closer to the world. And I was just somebody that I greatly admired listening to them. And some of the language that she was, as she praises Jesus with one voice, then she was using, and I think, if you wear his name, if we are his representative, if we really are made in his image, and his spirit is supposedly coming out of us, it's kind of an all or nothing thing. And it is so hard, and he knows us. Just like back then, you just inch closer and closer which just means we have to be so careful of of keeping that foot because we don't want to miss out on mm-hmm. the soccer tournaments and the sure. all, if it's all good stuff mm-hmm. but it's when all of a sudden it just beca- takes the place mm-hmm. of lord of our lives yeah that's right yeah it's uh it's the when you're in the pot and the water's boiling you know slowly and you just you just don't realize and so you just kind of inch and inch and inch and then all of a sudden if you don't take survey occasionally, you don't realize, okay, I'm way out of, of what God has called me to be. So that's part of being in community with others so that we can keep each other on track and, and move together. Um, I was going to make one other comment. Um, well, just as far as, as the kids go, um, you know, I, I don't think that any of us would, would you know, sacrifice children in, in worship but we do have to think about how we're forming the next generation communally. So um, if, if we uh, parent poorly or, or if we fail to uh, instill faith into the next generation, then essentially we're drawing them uh, away from God as well. So that always has to be on the forefront of, of any community of faith is how are we passing on faith to the next generation? We see that in the, in the Passover meal. That's the whole purpose of the Passover meal is to tell the story to the to the children so that that's always got to be a a high high priority um okay um all right i kind of lost my place here we've talked about the sin of idolatry they became worthless i think that is rooted in being in the image of god Uh, we read at the end of this section here that jeroboam made matters worse and um you know honestly that's a that's a little bit of a confusing part to me i think uh when jeroboam is is the king perhaps it's just referring to jeroboam kind of being the point of no return where that sends them on this trajectory to eventual um exile but it seems a little bit out of chronology chronological order here so and and for some reason he's referring back to jeroboam i guess um you know jeroboam is the king that that first takes reign in Israel right after the kingdom splits. So I, I assume that the, the writer is just saying, you know, ever since this kingdom split, we have been on this path of not, not heeding God's commands and uh, I, idols have come and gone throughout our history. And ultimately, um, we have, we've come to this point with Hosea. Isn't this your, your example of I got in the pot of water, but it was just barely warm? With yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's also a a sense of whenever you bring in a new leader, there is a 
calls for optimism that perhaps mm -hmm. things will be better. I mean, when you look at the University of Tennessee, they've hired how many new leaders over the last five, ten mm -hmm. years, and then none of them lasted. Right. That would say something about the process, I think, or the people making those decisions. It's, a, it's an indictment of both the person who failed right. as a leader and those who selected. Yeah. But and even when a new person, still, when a new person comes in, you still have hope. You do. And six it's months later, then you, 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 you lead us. You're here, so now lead that's us. right. That's right. Um, okay. So in any case, after after the split, uh, Jeroboam uh, sets them on this pathway to eventual uh, exile, and then of course Israel is is scattered into Assyria. Um, this is significant because uh, historians would say Syria has a practice of scorched earth uh, where they would come in and conquer a land and wipe everybody out um, and many times didn't even inhabit that land. They would just wipe people out and go back home. Sometimes they would stay. Uh, in this case, um, it seems that Syria is maybe somewhat maturing in the way they war. Um, in this case, they don't wipe everyone out. They take uh, the, the people, the inhabitants of Israel, and farm them out throughout their, um, throughout their kingdom. And then we will learn that uh, Assyria then takes people from other lands that they have conquered and moves them into Israel. And what they're doing is uh, wiping out culture. They're, by, by assimilating everybody, they're, they're ending certain culture, they're ending certain religions but they're not necessarily uh, just uh, creating this bloodbath of, of killing everyone. Uh, and it even appears that there is a, a small remnant of Israelites that stay in, in Israel. So it just seems like they're just trying to disperse people around so that ultimately people lose their sense of identity and nationality and can become, uh, have allegiance to, to Syria or Assyria at this so point. Fast forward the time of Jesus, that's the Samaritan. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we're going we're gonna to talk about that here in just a second. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a good segue. Let's go ahead and look at the, this next section here, starting in verse 24. Uh, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, uh, Kata, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people, which is interesting. You don't think of lions uh, roaming there, although I guess I guess at this time, I guess they, they did. David was fighting lions. Uh, it was reported uh, to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of the country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing, uh, killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines. Uh, the people of... Sorry, I'm too far away. Uh, nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The men from Babylon made Sukkoth, Benoth, the men from uh, Kata made Nergal, and the men from Hamath made Ashima, 
The Avats made Nibaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharvim. Uh, they worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. So you see this intermingling of, of gods and faiths. Uh, to this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither, neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of, of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. <clears throat> Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. How much more clear can he make it? Do not worship these other gods. And they do it. It's, it's essentially the one condition of living in this promised land, of having this kingdom. You will be my people. I will be your God. Do not worship foreign gods. This is the condition of the covenant. And, and they, can't, they can't meet that condition. But those aren't his people, right? They're the people from all these other places that he's saying this to now. Well... Right, this is referring back, look at the end of verse 34. This is referring back to the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, and then it goes through all of that repetition. So it's, it's referring back to the original covenant, which we see that original covenant, you know, in, in the first chapter of Joshua. Uh, we don't have a ton of time, but uh, I'll just read a, a verse or two here just to refresh your memory. <clears throat> So this, of course, is right as they're um, entering into the promised land after the death of Moses. Um, verse 3, I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the, between the great rivers. Uh, verse 5, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The, the verse we love, be strong and courageous because... Uh, you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Um, and then, uh, okay, well, he just refers to the book of the law, verse 8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, meditate it on day and night. So <clears throat> and be careful to do everything written in it. So he's referring to the law. The, the greatest command is to not worship foreign gods. There shall be no other gods before me. So that's the condition uh, of the covenant, and they're unable to, to hold that condition. As Hilton said a minute ago, uh, these people that uh, Syria brings into Israel from all these other kingdoms that they have conquered, uh, these, these folks are now the settlers in the land of Israel, and these people are the ones that become the Samaritans that we know from the New Testament. 
so which are a, a blend of people. These are people that have come in to the promised land to settle it. <clears throat> so you can see why the Israelites would not like these people. It would be akin to um, someone, some other country settling their people in our country, displacing us. We might, we might not be pleased with that. So we, we might not like those, those people. Um, but a couple of notes about these Samaritans. <clears throat> we do see, um, of course, we know the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, uh, where um, the Jew can't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan that was the good person. He just says it was the one that showed mercy was, was the person that we should be like. Um, that story in Luke 10 is really patterned off, off of a story in Second Chronicles 28, versus uh, that whole chapter, but 12 and 15, you'll see the same language that Jesus uses in uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, the, the healing balm, putting the injured on the donkey, taking respite in Jericho, all those same phrases uh, are first found in, in 2 Chronicles 28 when uh, there's been a battle between Israel and Judah, and Judah is decimated, and <clears throat> some of the warriors from Israel capture people from Judah, take them up to Israel, into the land of Samaria in the north, and um, they're going to enslave them. And some of the people in Israel have heard from God that this is not a good thing to do to your brother. Remember, Israel, Judah is your brother. And so uh, they, they turn them back around and send them back down to Judah on donkeys with healing bombs and care and respite. And they actually go to Jericho, which shows up in the story of Luke chapter 10. So <clears throat> when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's very likely uh, the Jews know their history well. They would have thought back to this story and thought, oh yeah, we are the people of Samaritans. We're the ones supposed to be providing the healing balm. We're the ones that are supposed to be showing mercy to the wounded and the, and the hurting. Um, so that, that's where that uh, story is rooted. Talked a little bit already about scorched earth and the diversity that shows up. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, let's see, back to uh, Second Kings. I don't think I need to reread this, but in thirty, starting in thirty-five. Yeah, this is the part that Dixie was talking about. This whole covenantal relationship that's between God and the Israelites, and since the Israelites fail uh, to uphold their end, that's why they're they're banished. Okay, um, so that that's the chapter of the fall of Israel. Just a couple of of things about the exile motif. Um, of course, we know that there is a, a remnant that stays as a community, even though they are displaced. Uh, and eventually we see that Jesus comes to Israel to, to reestablish that remnant. But the exile motif shows up throughout scripture. We see it in the garden where Adam and Eve are, are given one condition. That's to not eat from, from this specific tree and they do it and so they're banished. Uh, Abraham is exiled from his kin, his kin people to a promised land. He hears that call. Moses, you remember, is exiled from Israelites after, um, well, a couple of times. After he commits murder, he's first exiled from, actually, from Egypt. At that point, he's living as, a, as an Egyptian. <clears throat> and then, uh, of course, in the wanderings of the wilderness, he experiences an exile season. We see Jacob exiled from Esau. Joseph is exiled to Egypt. Uh, just over and over again, this, this story happens. Uh, and in fact, this is our story, right? We are living in a world that is not perfect. It's broken. Um, I hesitate to say 
you know, the old song that this is not my home, we're just passing through. Um, I think that this is not necessarily our home just because God is not here dwelling with us yet. So that doesn't mean that earth is expendable necessarily, um, but, but it hasn't all been made right. Um, and eventually in Revelation, at the end of the story, we see the holy city coming down so that God can make his dwelling place uh, among us again. So eventually this exile that we're in uh, will end as well. We won't go through all of those uh, bullet points, but that may, that may be the end. Um, <clears throat> we're out of time, but uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced exile in your life. Um, perhaps if you've just moved from city to city um, and experienced uh, changing churches, you feel a little bit uh, disoriented after those seasons happen. We had to live in Cleveland three years. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> That's, I don't know if that's, that's Syria or Babylon, but um, Dixie and I have experienced exile even from a, a church at one point. I'll tell more about this story later, but we were at a fairly conservative Church of Christ and, um, because that's our, our tribe and our heritage and the people we love. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, we, start, we visited another church one time and the elders got a hold of it and, and, and didn't like that. And so they said, well, you, you, you can no longer do anything at this church. We were teaching... I don't know, four, four-year-olds. I know. So <laughs> what happened, to make a long story short, we, we knew we were only going to be in that city another six months or so. So we ended up just going to a community church for about six months. But it was very disorienting to us. We grew up in an acapella church. This church was a rock and roll instrumental church that was stretching to us. There was one time the pastor, which even that word was foreign to us, the pastor was praying, and it was a fine prayer. And then all of a sudden, there was like 10 seconds that I just missed and I remember looking down, we had some friends, and I said, what did he say? I, I didn't understand. And, and she said, oh, that was his prayer language. And so there was a little bit of tongue speaking occasionally, and I thought, well, this is so foreign to me. <laughs> so it was a good experience for us. I'm glad that we had that experience. It was growing and stretching, and there were some things that were different to us, but it, but it was healthy for us to grow. Um, but it was very disorienting, and it felt like a little bit of an exile just in the fact that we were away from the people that we knew, our, our tribe. And so um, anytime you have a season like that, I think it's important to see how God is at, is at work. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. We're, we're out of time. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was a, that was a lot. Yeah, good.